The Bob Murphy Show, episode 157. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everyone welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show today i'm gonna be talking with peter schiff who i'm sure most of you know But in case you don't, let me just read a little bit from his website. Peter Schiff is chairman of Schiff Gold, CEO and chief global strategist of Euro-Pacific Capital Incorporated and the host of the Peter Schiff Show. Peter is an economic forecaster and investment advisor influenced by the free market Austrian School of Economics. He's one of the few forecasters who accurately and publicly predicted the 2007 housing market collapse and subsequent 2008 financial crisis. His latest best-selling book, The Real Crash, America's Coming Bankruptcy, How to Save Yourself and Your Country, warns that the 2008 crisis was just the prelude to a larger sovereign debt crisis in the U.S. that may lead to a collapse of the U.S. dollar. Okay, so that's who he is, where he's coming from. And yes, he really did publicly predict the housing bubble collapse and the ensuing financial crisis. Uh, If you haven't seen that stuff, I'll put it in the links there's a, a YouTube compilation called Peter Schiff was right. That's just hilarious showing Peter on CNBC and other venues saying things in like 2006 that were going to come true shortly thereafter. And people just laughing in his face, like, like quite literally laughing at him. So uh, we, we talk about that stuff in the, in the interview. We also get into uh, Peter's views on minarchy versus anarcho-capitalism. So that's some fun stuff. And talk about his move to Puerto Rico and whether he thinks other people ought to take the plunge and become expats if you're on the fence. All that and more in the ensuing discussion. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Peter Schiff. Well, Peter, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Oh, thanks, Bob, for having me uh, on your show. So uh, obviously, most of my listeners already know a lot about you. um, So I was wondering if we could go back and just probe a little bit on, you know, at what point... Did you start getting into free market ideas? Obviously, maybe your dad had a, a big influence on that. So I wonder if you could speak a little bit to that. Yeah, I mean, that's basically it. It was my father. From an early age, my dad spoke to my brother and I about economics, about uh, you know politics, U.S. history. I'd probably say from even elementary school. Mm-hmm. So yeah, really, it goes back. In fact, I'm told that when I was about one years old, because I was born in 1963, mm-hmm. and there was a presidential election in 1964. And, uh, you know, my, my dad was a big uh, Barry Goldwater supporter. So one of the things I used to say is people used to come up and ask me, who, who do you want for president? I would say Barry Goldwater. And they would say, you know, this is I'm probably like one years old, if, if that. And, <laughs> and, then they, and then they would say, uh, well, what do you think of Lyndon Johnson? And I said, fooey on Lyndon Johnson. <laughs> my response. So yeah, he he started uh, teaching me, you know, probably right 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 out of the right out of the womb as a, as a little baby. Now, did you like from the beginning? Then was were you like a like a hard money? Like did you like gold money and stuff, or or, or did that come later in your? No, no. Well, I was always 
you know, into gold and silver as mm -hmm. money. I mean, I understood that from a legal perspective because of the Constitution and because my father testified in 1968 in front of the Senate Committee on Money and Banking. He was one of the few people to oppose uh, going off the gold standard and, mm -hmm. and his accurate forecasts about what would happen in the 1970s uh, were you know, completely accurate. So he was the only person that predicted a weaker dollar, a higher gold price, rising inflation. Uh, the other economists, you know, including the, the sitting Fed chairman and the secretary of the Treasury, thought that if we went off the gold standard, the price of gold would fall. You know, it was $35 an ounce. So uh, they couldn't have been more wrong. Uh, they mm -hmm. thought that the dollar was supporting gold instead of gold supporting the dollar, which was the case. And without that support, the dollar crashed in the 1970s, which is something that I expect to uh, to happen again. But, you know, even when I got bar mitzvah, you know, I'm not, when I was 13 years old, I, I bought gold with my bar mitzvah money. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, I sold it to get a car, <laughs> which the pre which actually was good timing. Uh, my first car when I was in high school. But um, yeah, because then, you know, it was then, you know, that was around the top of the market. I was I got my car in 1980. And oh, yeah. pretty much that was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yes, yeah, so I got bar mitzvah, I think, around 76. So I was able to catch some of the upside in gold and then get out and, uh, you know, bought something that depreciated probably a little more slowly at the time. Right. Right. That did gold. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, you know, I've, I've been into free market economics you know, Austrian economics, uh, limited government, all, all that is, you know, my entire life, pretty much. So did you have an inkling, like when you said your dad was testifying, did you know that was unusual or do you kind of just think like, oh yeah, my dad's testifying and, you know, doesn't every kid's dad go testify? Well, I didn't really know. I was five, right? Mm -hmm. Because I was born in 63 and he testified at 68. So I didn't really know about that testimony until years later when I was old enough to understand it. And in fact, when my father wrote his first book, the biggest con, which unfortunately I don't have any copies left to sell. Mm -hmm. I have a few copies that I'm keeping, um, but you can buy you know, used copies. You know, I, if you go to shiftbooks.com, we think mm -hmm. we have some links. I mean, the eBay, Amazon, they're kind of pricey because there's not a lot of them around. Um, but when my dad wrote his first book, he included the excerpts from his testimony at that hearing, as well as excerpts from the testimony of you know the Fed chair and secretary of treasury, just to kind of show how wrong they were and how, mm -hmm. how right he was. And I think, you know, it's the same thing today. I think, you know, you've got a pal and Mnuchin are completely wrong uh, with what they're saying about not only the efficacy of current monetary and fiscal policy, but the general direction of the U.S. economy, what's going to be happening in the future. I think they're as wrong now right. as their counterparts were back then. And I think I'm as right now as my dad was. Sure, sure. It just, it just to amplify, I want to make sure the listeners got that because that's something I didn't learn that until, I mean, was was years ago, but I mean, it was relatively late in terms of me understanding like, you know, gold and whatever. That yeah, in this, when they went up, went off, that the, you know, the, the government was prepared to, at least for, you know, other central banks was going to redeem dollars for gold at the rate of $35 an ounce. And they thought by taking that peg off, that gold would fall because, like you say, they, they thought that the dollar was propping. Like, like, in other words, gold couldn't fall below 35 an ounce because you could always turn it yeah. into the government. That's actually the way those people thought, which is just amazing in hindsight. Yeah, and I think, you know, people make the same mistake even with looking at other currencies like, like the Chinese yuan. Everybody expects that if the Chinese yuan or, you know, the Hong Kong dollar, if they were to de-peg from the U.S. dollar, that those currencies would fall. I actually think it's the dollar that would fall. 
I think right. these countries, through their monetary policy and trade policy, are actually working to artificially prop up the dollar to maintain that peg. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's the dollar that's gaining from this relationship, not the yuan or you know the Hong Kong dollar. Mm-hmm. So I, I do want to certainly get to your views on the current situation, but can you just fill in the gap? So how did you, so you're, you know, you run Euro-Pacific Capital right now. Uh, what, what was the transit? Like, how did you go from just being a young guy who was interested in this stuff because your dad to then you're in the financial markets with these, you know, hard money views? Well, you know, I, I had a job when I was in college. I took a couple of years off and I was living in Minnesota and I was, you know, selling gold and silver, you know, kind of the way, you know, shift gold does now. We're mm-hmm. selling it through another company. And when I graduated from Berkeley, I had now had some experience in sales and I did, I had some sales background. I had jobs when I was in high school, even junior high school, and many of them involved selling, you know, I, you know, so I had some sales background and I was interested in economics and finance. So I ended up getting a job right out of college uh, in commodity options and futures, you know, Get, you know, selling that. And I didn't really know too much about it, mm-hmm. but I found pretty, pretty early in my career that it really was gambling. And I had some early success, uh, but then I lost back a lot of the money that I made. And I decided that it was kind of too speculative for the clients. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I was doing really well, but um, I just didn't, you know, think it was as you know, easy to make money as I first thought, you know, before I had right. any experience. And the commissions ended up being a big part of it because you trade a lot. And even though you could beat the market, it was hard to beat the VIG. So I kind of transitioned to becoming a stockbroker because I thought that, you know, just buying and holding stocks and getting dividends, that that would be a better way for me to encourage people to invest than to speculate on commodity futures, you know, whether it was Mm -hmm. currencies or bonds or stock index futures or, you know, pork bellies or whatever I was, you know, trading. Um, So I got into that. but you know, I worked at a major firm, which is actually no longer in business, Lehman Brothers. You know, they were part of Shearson Lehman. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I didn't stay there very long because I really didn't like the environment because I, I thought that they were trying to pressure me to do things that really weren't in my client's interest. I mean, they were clearly in the interest of the firm and they clearly would have benefited me as a broker. There was very big commissions if I pushed people into the products that that they liked. Uh, but I didn't think that was the right thing to do for my clients. And a lot of people didn't have a problem with that. But I did. I mean, I really wanted to to do what was right for my clients. I mean, I wanted to make money for myself. Mm-hmm. But I thought that in the long run, I could make more money for myself if I did what was right for my clients than to take these shortcuts, which would have given me more money right away, but ultimately would not have helped me build as big a client base. So that's kind of what had me start my own business which I ended up doing. So I could kind of do it my way and I can make the investment recommendations that I believed in, whether you know those were right or wrong. It's just, I wanted to know that, I, that it was something I truly believed in. And so when I was telling people to make an investment, I wanted it to be really what I thought was the best thing they should do. Not something that some, my, my sales manager was trying to entice me into selling by giving me a, you know, a bigger bonus. Mm-hmm. And of course they rewarded people. If you did what they said, they would give you more accounts. They would give you more leads because you were playing ball. You know, I was kind of like a square hole in, in, in a or square peg in a, in a round hole. So I started Europe Pacific Capital um, early on in, in the mid 1990s and just okay. kind of grew there to be able to, you know, be, be you know, not considered really mainstream kind of on the fringes because my perspective is not mainstream. I mean, the mainstream is to be a Keynesian, 
uh, to believe in central banking and the Fed and to be a cheerleader for everything that's going on in the economy and just always be bullish on the U.S. stock market, regardless of valuation and to ignore, you know, all these uh, long term problems. But, I, you know, I didn't want to do that. And so uh, here we are. So great. So how did you in the beginning, like, did you take a block of business with you or did you have to start from scratch? And how, how did you attract? No, I mean, not that many clients, a few clients kind of followed me. Mm-hmm. from my days at Lehman, but I didn't, I wasn't there that long. I was there for like a year, year and a half. So it's not okay. like I had that many clients mm-hmm. to begin with. I mean, I had mm-hmm. some and, um, but a lot of, I just really started building my business from scratch. Initially, I, I was getting a lot of business from some products that I believed in. I contacted, uh, you know, companies and they started sending me leads. And, and then I started to develop a lot of relationships with financial newsletter writers, mm-hmm. a lot of guys that were recommending foreign stocks. I, I, I was really bearish on the U.S. market during the latter part of the 1990s, particularly 1998, 1999. You know, I was just, you know, this is a huge bubble. This dot com thing is going to be a disaster. And so I started, that's when I really started, you know, getting heavily into the foreign stocks. So I found a lot of newsletters that were recommending foreign stocks and I showed them how I can save their subscribers money by buying foreign stocks directly on foreign exchanges rather than through the pink sheets, which is what everybody else was doing at the time. And so I was pointing out, hey, you're telling some of your client to go buy the stock in Hong Kong and maybe the, the price of the stock is, you know, a dollar a share, but they're buying it for a dollar ten, a dollar twenty, because you know, Schwab or Fidelity, whoever it was, they're just executing it on the pink sheets. They're getting a lousy fill. Just send those leads to me. And I'll go directly to Hong Kong and I'll buy it for a dollar. I'll mm-hmm. charge more money than the discount brokers. I would mark it up maybe three, four percent. So I would buy it at a dollar and sell it to the customer at a dollar three, dollar four. But that was way better than paying a dollar ten or a dollar twenty. You know, so mm-hmm. I started getting a lot of business that way. Um, but ultimately, you know, I started to generate my own business as I started to do a lot of stuff on the internet. And this was really after the dot com bubble popped. And once Greenspan slashed rates down to 1%, and I can see the effect that was having early on on stocks, on real estate, particularly real estate, I was really you know, a vocal critic of the real estate bubble as it was being inflated. Sure. Mm-hmm. And so I started writing a lot of stuff on the internet, uh, articles all the time about the mistakes that Greenspan was making and the dire consequences that were in store. And I think 2004 is when I really started going on TV uh, CNBC, CNN, Bloomberg, Fox, really very critical of the Fed, the monetary policy, Bush administration, the deficits, all the stuff, warning about the financial crisis. That's when I earned the nickname Dr. Doom on, right. on, on a squawk box, and it kind of stuck for a while. And I got a lot of press as being you know, the bear, the guy that was like saying all this bad stuff was going to happen. And And as I was doing that, I started to get a lot of uh, you know, my own leads were coming in. And then I wrote my book, my first book. I started writing it in 2005, Crash Proof. I had a profit from the coming economic collapse. That book really helped me. It came out in February of uh, 2007, but it, it gained a whole new life after the financial crisis. Sure. And then mm-hmm. somebody, oh, I don't even know, put together that Peter Schiff was right video, which was a compilation of a lot of my arguments in 06, 07. Um, and that helped, you know, get a lot of publicity mm-hmm. for me. So I did. I, you know, I really stopped relying on newsletters and was generating a lot of interest 
mainly by people who had common concerns, right? My customer base is comprised generally of people who agree with me economically, politically, who think a day of reckoning is coming, who are worried about a dollar in inflation. And so therefore they don't wanna follow the traditional uh, investment model that you would get from a mainstream firm that doesn't share those views, that is very, very optimistic. And then the portfolios would be very uh, US focused, US stocks, US bonds, to the extent that they invested internationally, it's a small part of the portfolio and considered, you know, this is the very aggressive part. Where for me, I think that the most aggressive thing you could do, the riskiest thing is to keep your money in the US, to keep your money mm-hmm. in the dollar, especially now with all the inflation that we're creating and the deliberate efforts to debase the dollar. Uh, so uh, people that share my concerns, they come to me and I, you know, I help create a portfolio that will do well if I'm right. But I also try to keep in mind that I could be wrong. So I also have portfolios that can also do well if I'm wrong. They'll do even better if I'm right. Right. But it's not like it's an all or nothing bet. Like, hey, if right. Peter Schiff is wrong, I get wiped out. No, if Peter Schiff is wrong, you still have a really good portfolio of foreign stocks that pay good dividends. They're not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I have some gold. Uh, but you know, I don't, I don't have to be right for that portfolio to do well over time. But if I am right, that's when it does a lot better. Right, right. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about this. So folks, um, I'll have links for all this stuff Peter's talking about at bobmurphyshow.com slash 157. But yeah, the for those who haven't seen it, the, the Peter Schiff was right compilation on YouTube. And, and again, folks, I'll put a link in the show notes. It's just amazing. And I wanted to ask you about that. So in particular, I mean, there's stuff where now in hindsight, we can look back and you're calling like in, you know, in 2006, you're saying exactly what's going to happen with the housing market And it's not that the people on CNBC are like, I respectfully disagree, good sir. They're literally (laughs) they're literally laughing in your face. Like I'm not exaggerating, folks. You got to see they're literally. So I'm wondering, like, did you start to doubt yourself at all, or like in the movie in the Big Short, you know, the Christian Bale character, you know, he's on the ground, kind of in a fetal position when all the investors want to pull out. He like he knows he's right, but he can't believe the market's going on this long. Like, did you have moments like that where it was like the world's crazy, but maybe they're gonna last? The craziness is gonna keep going. Uh, I mean, I knew I was right. I mean, mm-hmm. you, 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 again, maybe I'm a lot earlier than I thought, but um, ultimately, you know, the hedge fund that we finally set up in 06 was timed very, very well because then mm-hmm. the market imploded in 07. But, mm-hmm. you know, I started really warning about the housing bubble in 02 and 03, if you go back to the things that I was writing. And I was the one that was actually doing the lectures. I mean, you go, I, I have my mortgage banker speech from 2006 that is on my website on the YouTube channel. And you can see everything I, I said to 3,000 mortgage bankers in 2006 mm-hmm. about the, the, the coming collapse. And the only reason I went there is I was hoping that some of these bankers would want to invest money in my the fund to short the subprime market. Only one of, one of them did out of, out of 3,000. One guy invested with me. Uh, and, you know, you, I think you made 10 times his money uh, as a result mm-hmm. of having done that. But most people, you know, I mean, I, I laid it out perfectly what was going to happen. And then what you can't see is you don't see my workshop because I did my overall presentation at the Mortgage Bankers Conference. But then I had a private workshop, right, where I went into detail exactly what the problem was in the mortgage market and subprime and exactly how this hedge fund was going to profit by shorting. Uh, these bonds, right? So the exact trade that was uh, uh, portrayed 
in the big short. I was in this small room with about you know 60 to 100, I forget how many people came, telling them exactly what was gonna happen and why and, and how much money they would make. So I handed them that trade. Mm-hmm. And, and I even told them, look, just do it in case. What if, even if I'm wrong, your whole livelihood depends. You guys are mortgage bankers, right? This is how you're making money. So if your whole business implodes, why not have a little bit of money bet on the no pass line just right, in case, right? right? This will be a hedge. And in fact, the reason I was even there is because I, I was at their conference in 05 and I wish I had that one because that was a great, because it was more of a debate. I was up on the stage and there was all these big wigs uh, in the housing market and the banks. I mean, guys like was Bank of America, uh, Countrywide, it was all these top, top CEOs and then me. This was a big major conference. And this is in 05. This mm-hmm. was the peak of the housing bubble. And these guys couldn't have been more bullish about the future of housing and real estate prices. And I was like, you guys are crazy. This is a massive bubble. I explained exactly how the Fed had inflated it, the moral hazards behind Fannie and Freddie, the problems with securitization. I mean, everything perfectly. And then what happened was by 06, some of my predictions came true. That's why when you see the introduction to the mortgage bankers speech, the guy introduces me by saying, hey, Peter was here last year. He said some very disturbing things, but some of those things have come true, right? right and right. so that I wish we had the the original one because that one is actually better because of you know the people I was debating and who they were. Um, but uh, we've got the the uh, the more the, the the second one which which is up there. But you know the Petership was right video that was only one. There was a lot of other stuff. In fact, if you go to my YouTube channel now, my introductory video mm-hmm. has a lot of different clips with people laughing at me. I mean, in fact, in fact, one of them we go. Um, I said, "Who's laughing?" You know, because I'm talking about how prices are going <laughs> right. to collapse. And, 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 and I say, who's laughing? And this one guy yells out, I am at you, <laughs> you know, because it's so because, you know, pe- people are like, this is crazy. But a lot of the guys from the Petership was right. Ben Stein publicly apologized to me for the things that he said. Mm-hmm. He actually ended up doing an endorsement of my book, um, The Real Crash, uh, uh, The Real Crash, America's Coming Bankruptcy. So that was nice of him to come out and say, yeah, you know, I. Peter Schiff was right. I should have listened to him. But, you know, the original Peter Schiff was right video that got over two million views on YouTube back in 2009. I mean, that's not a lot of views today, but that was a tremendous number of views back then. It was like one of the most viewed YouTube videos at that time. Now, that original version, eventually, I don't know why the guy that uploaded it decided to take it down. So it disappeared. So, I mean, I, there are a few copies. I have a copy on my site, but it doesn't have nearly as many views. It maybe has, I don't know, 100, 200,000 yeah. views. I'm not really I'm sure. I'm glad you explained but, that because, yeah, I noticed huh? that. I'm, sorry, I'm glad you explained that because I noticed when I went to dig it up, you know, like after the first time I saw it, I wanted to share it with people at some point. I was like, I can't find the original one because I know the first one I saw had 2 million views and now they only have like 200,000. So, okay. Yeah, that one was taken down years ago, mm-hmm. years ago. And, and, and so other people had copied it and so I was able to get a copy of it and then post it on my site. Mm-hmm. And so now mine, I think, is the most viewed version. But yeah, I don't know why the guy took it down. Um, but uh, but yeah, but I mean, but it was there for many, many years. But most of the views happened kind of right away because it was a very, um, a very good video. You know, that happened again, you know, another video that was really going to go viral. And I got very upset that it got taken down because I didn't put it up was when I, the first time I testified before Congress, I, I testified twice. 
now before Congress. So I kind of followed in my dad's footsteps there. I, I, I was they're, they're not going to invite me back a third time. And if you if you watch the first two, you'll know why they're not going to invite me back. Right, right. I was shocked that they invited me back the second time after even the first one. But if you go to my YouTube channel, it's it's Mr. Schiff goes to Washington. Mr. Schiff returns to Washington. You can see both my testimonies. But the first one, somebody put it up. I didn't even put it up myself. Somebody put it up. And then it got on. It was such a good, you know, talk. It was just my clip. So it was edited. It was about 20 minutes, 25 minutes, because I was I was one person on a panel. Right. And so the guy just edited out all the other people and just focused on me. So like and, your testimony, then you answering questions. Yeah, yeah. Compi- yeah, yeah. And so it eventually it started going crazy. And it, it, uh, Drudge picked it up at a few other sites. And it was up to like maybe four or five hundred thousand views, like right away, like in on the first day. And then what happened was there were two versions that were on it, right? The guy that made the original, somebody made it and then somebody else copied it. And so the, the version that Drudge promoted in there was the copy. And so it was doing really well. And then the guy that put it up originally, like threatened the guy with a copyright infringement. Right, right. Yeah. And so he got scared and he took it down. And so then it lost all of its momentum because the, 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 the link that everybody was using was no longer there. Mm-hmm. So I had put a copy up, but that one could have been really, really big. But, you know, the, the one that gained a lot of traction was my Occupy Wall Street one, mm-hmm. because that one got millions of views. Can you just explain what that is for the p- per- people who don't know? Yeah, this was in, I think, 2010 or 2011. I went down to Zuccotti Park. You know, that's where they were occupying for Occupy Wall Street in New York. So I went down there to actually confront the occupiers and to, you know, to, to you know, kind of represent the 1%, right? Mm-hmm. They were the 99% and I was the 1%. And I had a sign, you know, I'm the 1%, let's talk. And of course, you know, the Occupy Wall Street movement was after the 2008 financial crisis where everybody was blaming Wall Street for the creating the crisis, right? Because Wall Street was the epicenter of the crisis and then Wall Street got bailed out, right? They, they, they did bad things and they got bailed out. And as you and I both know, you know, the real culprit was the U.S. government. It was the Federal Reserve. It was Fannie and Freddie. Yes. You know, once the U.S. government, uh, you know, rigged the game. Yes, sure. People on Wall Street wanted in on the action. But, you know, it's hard to blame them for drinking all the alcohol that the Fed is pouring, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and, and it's hard to resist, especially when, you know, you're, you know, you're your competitors do it. And now, you know, they're, they're, they're making all this money and you can't really sit it out. You have to kind of join the party reluctantly. You know, you have to dance while the music is playing. That's what they said after the fact. Look, we had no choice. The music was playing. We had to dance, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so I blamed the Fed. They were playing the music. They were keeping the party going. They were, they were doing all that. So I wanted the guys at Zuccotti Park, I wanted to redirect their anger away from Wall Street to Washington you know, to Pennsylvania mm-hmm. Avenue, to, to, or to, to the White House, to the Fed, to Congress. And, and, and all the stuff that they don't lo- like about Wall Street is a result of the government and even all the lobbying efforts. I mean, if the government didn't have all this power to, to use, then nobody would be lobbying for that power to be used to their advantage or to the detriment of their competitors. You, you mean, obviously, once you empower government to basically ruin businesses or protect businesses, then businesses now have to lobby. Uh, you know, just like, you know, you, you, you got the mafia out there uh, and they're threatening, uh, you know, to destroy, build, build you know, you got to pay them off. You got to cooperate. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you know, 
they're, they're, they're going to harm you. So that's the same thing. You've got all these private industries now have to play ball and they have to pay these lobbyists because once you have a tax code and now you have all these exemptions, well, you've got to try to lobby to make sure that it favors you uh, over somebody else. I mean, if we had no income tax or we had no tax code, then there'd be no, nothing to lobby. So, uh, but I was more focused on the monetary aspects of it. So I was trying to get these guys to, uh, to protest government. Mm-hmm. Hey, you don't like the bailouts? Fine. Don't protest Wall Street for accepting the bailouts. Protest government for making the bailouts available in the first place. Right. I mean, if someone offers you free money, are you supposed to turn it down? Well, I mean, you can't blame the guy that accepts it. Blame the guy that's making the offer especially right, when right. it's not their money. They're offering up taxpayer money. Right. So I went down there and it's very interesting. Uh, I was there for about two hours. We ran out of light and batteries. So that's kind of what stopped the thing. Plus I actually we had theater tickets. I, we were going, I was going with my wife mm-hmm. to see a show right after that. So we, uh, you know, we wanted to, we wanted to make the, mm-hmm. the curtain. So we left, but it was, a, it got a lot of views initially. Reason did it. Uh, and they put it up and they got a million views more. And then some other people copied it. And they got millions of views. And then, you know, I didn't even put it up on my own YouTube channel until two years ago. I just decided, hey, you know, I've never even had my own version of this. Mm-hmm. So I put it up. And now I got three million views on that. Mm-hmm. And, but, well, and it had already been seen yeah. by, by, you know, yeah. so that one has probably got more than, you know, 10 million total views. If, in fact, I saw mm-hmm. some other web- website. I never even heard of them. They put it up a f- before I put mine up. And they got over 2 million views. And that, and that again, that was, you know, five years after it was originally posted. So that one has done really well. And I still get probably to this day, almost every day, you know, maybe there's some days I don't get one, but at least every day, almost I get an email from somebody somewhere in the world that credits that video for turning them around as far as getting them to move from being a socialist or just very left leaning to being a free market, libertarian, mm-hmm. you know, conservative. And, you know, it, and it wasn't necessarily that video all by itself, but that woke them up to the point that they now looked into the alternative and now did some more research and, and ultimately got them to make that, you know, that revelation or that epiphany where they, where they made that transformation. You know, and a lot of people do that anyway. Like a lot mm-hmm. of people when they're young and they don't have the influence like I did from my dad or like my son does for me, you know, they're just in the public school system and they're just exposed to all this nonsense. A lot of people begin by being very liberal or socialist. It's just, you know, to people that don't have a lot of experience uh, and a lot of understanding, uh, but they do care and they, you know, and they, 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 they sympathize with people. Uh, it's very tempting to just, you know, be, be left, you know, be, be a socialist. Uh, but as people get older and wiser and have real world experience and now start learning, you know, it's not just the stuff that their teachers are telling them, but they start learning stuff on their own. They start getting on the Internet. They listen to podcasts, you know, like yours. Uh, you know, they're going to make that transition anyway. You know, mm-hmm. it's unfortunate that some people never grow up and they, and they stay liberal their entire lives. Like a guy like Bernie Sanders, they can be, right, could right. be a socialist, you know, and it was all 80 years old. I mean, that's really an accomplishment to to live that long and still learn so little. Um, but I think a lot, so, some of these people might've made that transition anyway, but I'm glad that, that the video really helped mm-hmm. speed up the process. And, and that's really why I did it. I mean, I, I, I knew that I would have limited success with the actual people in the park that I was right. arguing mm-hmm. with. I mean, maybe I had some, 
But I knew that the bigger success would be to have that discussion out there so that millions and millions of people could view it online and, and, and get something out of it. Well, yeah, and it's, um, you know, for those who haven't seen it, again, folks, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 157. I'll put the links for all this. It really was good because you weren't, it, I'm going to try to say, you, you really did a good job of like explaining it and not being, not being patronizing, like, like realizing, yes, you guys have legitimate concerns, but let me just like, like yeah. let me make sure you're not being taken advantage of. Like these guys are playing you, you know, that kind of a. Yeah. And you know, I've watched it, you know, since mm -hmm. I've done it. And of course I always say, God, I wish I'd have said this, or I should have right. said that because, mm -hmm. you know, in the real time, you know, you, you say what you say and then you can go back and, and Monday morning quarterback, better things that you could have said and better ways you could have made points. Uh, but yeah, I mean, and and if you, you know, look at the demeanor, and of course, you know, I'm motivated to try to maintain my cool because I'm the one filming it, right? Right, right. But I mean, I never really start insulting these people, uh, but they're insulting me constantly and, and telling mm -hmm. me how dumb I am, you know? Right, <laughs> right. Because, because, you know, I'm not accusing them of being dumb. I'm right. just telling them that they're wrong and they don't understand stuff. And mm -hmm. I'm trying to give them another perspective, but they're just convinced that I'm an idiot because right. I don't agree with them. Well, all your uh, <laughs> years of doing CNBC prepared you for that. And that's how you kept your cool, right? <laughs> yeah. And they actually, I actually got on CNBC and they, they played clips of it on CNBC and we discussed it. It was a popular mm -hmm. uh, time, you know, but you know, I mentioned that I was on a lot of these stations as Dr. Doom leading up to the 2008 financial crisis. And they kept me on for a while longer after it. So 2009, 2010-ish. But then I really started getting phased out. And you know, over the last few years, I mean, I'm not on anything. I mean, Bloomberg mm -hmm. banned me, basically. They actually banned me probably about nine years ago. I was on Bloomberg more than any other financial right. network. I was on like once a week. I even guest hosted the show sometime. Uh, you know, there's some one show they'd have a guy be on for the whole hour. So I had some really good stuff on Bloomberg. I mean, really great appearances, uh, you know, it, it, you know, leading up to the financial crisis. Uh, but they, they were the first network to actually ban me where, you know, every time I got booked, they would cancel it. And and usually what would happen is they'd get a new booker that would join the program that would join the network. And one of the first things they try to do is get me on. And then they would book me and be all set up. And then last minute I, I'd get canceled until when it happens over and over again, then you realize, mm -hmm. you know, that you're banned. They won't officially acknowledge that they sure. banned me, but, but you I haven't been on in nine years. The new guy hadn't gotten the memo <laughs> yet. Yeah. So, so was, was that because they liked you, you on as Dr. Doom when it was the Bush administration, but not when it was Obama? Is it that? I, mean, or I thought that else? was part of it. I thought that was also mm -hmm. part of it with CNN mm -hmm. um, in that I was very critical of Bush and they had me on quite a bit and I was even on MSNBC, you know, I, I, mm -hmm. I you know, uh, but, but now, you know, CNN stopped having me on and MSNBC, you know, they, it really, you know, in fact, my last appearance on CNN was a really, really good one. I forget how many, four or five years ago, it was a round table uh, and it was me against three or four liberals. And you look, it was, it was on Obamacare and everything I said happened. Everything they said didn't happen about Obamacare. It was a really good discussion. It was, uh, mm -hmm. uh, that the show was like, was it 360 with uh, uh, Zakaria or whatever his name is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's, it, I got a couple hundred views on that. Um, I, I put it up on my YouTube channel. It's really good. If you watch that interview, I mean, I killed these guys. And, mm -hmm. and, and that might have, you know, so they haven't had me on since. Um, but I thought that part of that might have been part of it. But I think that, you know, I was a novelty 
in 2005, six, seven, talking about all this stuff that was going to happen. But once it happened, I think that that gave me some credibility. And, and so I think that they didn't necessarily want to have me on again to be able to you know, put that in their faces. And maybe they thought I'd have more credibility uh, you know, to continue to, you know, to point this stuff out. But also, I, I, I think that you know, it, it didn't take that long, right? I started going on CNBC in 04 and all these shows. That was my first one. Then I started doing all the other ones. So I was really only on for two or three years before all my predictions came true. So, but when I started to be critical of uh, the Fed after the financial crisis, when I started warning about all the problems that would result from QE, Mm-hmm. And I was completely accurate by saying that, you know, QE would never end, that they that once they started this, they could never uh, go back. That what the Fed was saying was a lie, that it wasn't temporary, that they were monetizing the debt, that they would never shrink the balance sheet, that they can never normalize interest rates. All of the problems that I saw happen. But what didn't happen was that, you know, consumer prices really shot up. The dollar right. didn't collapse and the U.S. stock market kept going up. And so it was going up for year after year after year. Mm-hmm. And everybody became so optimistic. Everybody accepted the conventional wisdom that Bernanke was a genius, that he saved the economy, that everything was great. And that guys like me who were critical of QE and zero percent interest, we were wrong. We were dead right. wrong. We said right. there'd be inflation. There's no inflation. There's deflation. You know, and, and the U.S. economy is doing great and the market is doing great and the housing market is doing great. And so maybe they even began, look, there's no way this guy could possibly be right. Maybe they thought they were actually doing a disservice to their viewers by actually exposing them to something so completely ridiculous mm-hmm. uh, as to assume that, you know, there was a problem here, that this was going to end badly. Right. That, you know, right. uh, and so maybe they actually thought that, you know, you know, I was fake news. Why well, have me on? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm clearly wrong. <laughs> you know? Right. Right. So, uh, and, and, so, and, and, and so, you know, and that's because this is an even a bigger bubble than the one we had before, because at least back then, maybe they acknowledged the possibility that I could be right, even though they thought I was wrong. And I think they also wanted some balance. They wanted at least some bears, you know, right. to offset the bulls. They don't want any balance anymore. It's only bulls. You know, you, you can never find a bear. The only bears are people who are less bullish than the bulls. Right. Right, right. Oh, I think the market's going up 30%. That's our bull. The bear, yeah, I only think it's going up 10%. I'm bearish. <laughs> so you know, so it's, it, they, they don't have people who are really out there. I mean, the only one that I see once in a while that comes on is David Stockman. Mm-hmm. But he's, he's not in the financial community. See, the thing about me is I was bearish. And, you know, and bearish doesn't mean I think the U.S. stock market's going to go down. I just think that the U.S. stock market is not the place to invest, that other markets will do better because I'm worried about inflation and potentially hyperinflation. And so in, this, in that scenario, stock prices go up along with the price of everything else. So I'm not necessarily like a Harry Dent saying the Dow is going to go to 1,000 or 4,000. I don't think the Fed is going to let that happen. They'll just print too much money for that to happen. I mean, if the Fed did the right thing, it might happen. Uh, mm-hmm. But there's no chance they're going to do that. But I'm one of the only people or the only people who is in the financial industry. I mean, I'm a broker dealer. I'm a registered investment advisor. I'm managing my own mutual fund company. So I'm, I'm you know, part of that, right? I'm in the financial services. I mean, I'm part of Wall Street, yet I'm, I'm, I'm saying this, the opposite that everybody else 
is saying. And so I don't think they like that. I don't think they like the fact that as an investment professional, I'm giving advice that's 180 degrees apart from what everybody else is doing, all their other guests, all their other advertisers. Uh, you know, what do they want me on there for? You know, scaring people out of, you know, investing right. in their mm-hmm. in, in their products. So Stockman isn't, you know, he's not managing money. Uh, he's just, you know, talking. But even he's not, he's barely on. I mean, how often do you see him on? I mean, not mm-hmm. not that often. Okay, yeah, that's that makes sense that you know they would be. And like you say, another difference between now and back then is you have that credibility under your belt, so you're more of a force. So if there was a reason that they didn't want you scaring away too many viewers now with your record, that yeah, you you'd be more likely to do that. And it's definitely not, you know, ratings. I mean, I used to be told back then that I was the best guest. I mean, I have mm-hmm. emails. I mean, they would tell me, I mean, when I would go on CNBC or, or people would say, you know, have them on again. You know, they would get emails, all kinds of emails. Mm-hmm. They didn't get that with their other guests. I mean, people used to recognize me in the street or they'd say, oh, see on CNBC, you know, you're the only time that I turn up the volume because I normally watch. I, I just have it on on mute because I just want to see the data. But if I see you, I turn up the volume because you're the mm-hmm. only person saying anything worth listening to. So mm-hmm. I had a big fan base. And in fact, when CNBC started doing their online stuff, I mean, they would call me all the time because they wanted me online because it would draw views. Because mm-hmm. if they could say it was Peter Schiff, there would be a bigger audience. Well, my my fan base is much larger today than it was back then. I mean, it's not even close. You know, the number of people I have, I mean, more people, you know, are listening to any one of my podcasts than are watching any particular uh, show on CNBC. So I have the potential to deliver a much bigger boost to their ratings now by having me on than than it was back then, yet they're Mm -hmm. not having me on. So there's obviously something else at issue here because they're deliberately not inviting somebody who is very good for their ratings. Right, right. You know, I'm not a bad guest. I mean, you go and look at these clips. I mean, they're always you know, entertaining clips. I mean, no one ever told me when I finished a hit, oh, bad job. It was a great hit. Fantastic. (laughs) Right. You really did a good job. And, you know, try try to be interesting next time, Peter. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. Let's have you back on. This is really good. And they would get all kinds of positive feedback every time I was on the show. Um, but then they just, you know, one, Mm. one by one, all, they all started blackballing me and, and not allowing me to have, and also I used to get Reporters, you go back and look at all the quotes, New York Times, uh, New York Post, Washington Post, uh, Los Angeles Times. I mean, lots of newspapers used to call me up, get my opinions. I used to get quoted all the time. Uh, our, you know, Times wrote it, you know, Time Magazine wrote a piece on me. I forget, several different magazines did feature stories, pictures of me in the magazines before the 08 crisis, not even right. after, just because. I was warning about these problems and it was so unique that they wanted mm-hmm. to kind of uh, do a story on the fact that, hey, here's this Wall Street guy, this investment guy who's got all this you know, negative. There was one art. Yeah, at the time I had like a uh, one of those uh, Grim Rip- Reaper seats yeah, yeah. in my hand and it was like mm-hmm. a dark, you know, uh, thing. Um, but none of that, none of that. I mean, I'm completely ignored, really, by the mainstream Nobody cares. I mean, people used to call me after the Fed made a decision. Hey, what do you think about it? They write. No one cares now what I think about what the Fed does in the mainstream. Right. But online, like I do a lot of podcasts like yours. So I do I do a lot of those. I do a lot more podcasts 
mm-hmm. now than I did then. Hell, I did I did Joe Rogan's podcast four times. I mean, a lot more people uh, listen to listen to that podcast and watch any of these shows. Definitely. Uh, but I and I do some foreign stuff. Although you know, I used to do a lot of uh, CNBC International. They banned me after regular CNBC, so I I kept getting invited on CNBC Europe and CNBC Asia for a couple of years after they banned me in the U.S. But then then they, I guess they sent the memo out: Hey, don't <laughs> have this guy on. He's not supposed to be on. Uh-huh. Um, and, um, yeah, and Fox news stopped. I mean, they almost, they actually finally had me on and actually, you know, I did a Tucker Carlson, Tucker Carlson invited me on. This was months and months ago and it was about the fed. And I, we did a great interview about the fed being a problem and the fed doing, and he was agreeing with me. It was a good piece and it never aired because it was taped and they never ran it. (laughs) Did they, so, how did they, and, like, you just kept tuning in and it never happened? And no, no, I did it. We recorded uh-huh. it, right? No, no, no right. But I, I mean, you were waiting for it to even, be on TV. I uh-huh. wasn't even that negative on Trump, you know, right. I, but I, you know, but I, but, but they just never, they never put it on. It wasn't live. And the reason they recorded it is because I was about to travel. And so mm-hmm. instead of doing it live, we ended up taping it because I, I had travel commitments. And so they right, really wanted right. to get it done. And so I did it. But it never aired. I mean, at least so I don't know what happened there. You know, if hmm. somebody because I hadn't really done much Fox and then I had done one. But maybe some guy higher up said, hey, we, we don't want this guy on. So don't don't run the segment. Yeah. I don't know. And they haven't called me since to rebook me. I don't know. Maybe they will. Uh, but yeah, I like because Tucker. it's I mean, I watched I mean, he's yeah. one of the only shows I actually watch. I think he's I right. think he says a lot of good stuff. And he certainly has the flexibility where he says, you know, he deviates from the script, you know, as it were. And plus, like you said, I mean, Trump's blast the Fed too. So if you were mostly anti-Fed, I, I, I'm not. But I'm, see why they I'm would... blasting the Fed for the opposite reason that Trump is. R- right, you know, right. Trump that's is true. blasting the Fed because they're mm-hmm. not printing enough money. Yeah, that's true. He thinks they've mm-hmm. got interest rates too high. He wants them negative. Right. <laughs> so, right. so you mm-hmm. know, I mean, when Trump and I were on the same page was when he was a candidate. Yeah. That's when he was criticizing their easy money policies and the bubble blowing and all that. Mm-hmm. But the minute he became a candidate and president rather and inherited the bubble, the last thing he wanted was the air to come out. So right. he became uh, critical of the Fed for not doing what he criticized them for doing. Yeah, um, yeah. But, you know, that's the other thing I don't get, though, is since I am critical of Trump the way I was critical of Bush, why aren't why isn't NBC having me on? Why isn't CNN having me on to criticize Trump, which I do? But, you know, I, I'm more critical of Biden. It's not like I'm, I'm saying that Trump is bad, so you should vote for Biden. Mm-hmm. Biden would be worse. You should vote for Trump. <laughs> but <laughs> but Trump, just because Trump is not as bad as Biden doesn't mean he's good. He's good only by comparison to Biden. But relative to the ideal, he's very bad, you know, and relative to what he promised. Now, Mm -hmm. I mean, I give him credit, at least his Supreme Court picks. I mean, that's, you know, the best thing he's done is, is to not put these lunatics on the court. So at least we have a chance of maybe having the constitution enforced against the government to protect our, 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 our liberty. Um, but other than that, he's presiding over the, the bubble getting bigger. Mm -hmm. You know, he's, Mm -hmm. he's not, doing anything to shrink government and make it smaller, he's making government bigger. All he's doing is reducing taxes to fund the bigger government that he wants. And he's replacing a printing press with taxes. So instead of taxing and spending, 
He wants to print and spend. That, that's even worse. I mean, at least tax to spend. Because if you're honest with the public and say, you want all this government, you got to pay for it, then the public may not want all the government. Oh, you mean I got to pay for it? You mean you got to raise taxes on me? It's not just the rich. You got to raise my taxes to pay for these programs. You know, the programs don't seem that good anymore. I don't, really, I don't think we need them. But if you're Trump and you say, hey, we're going to have all this government, it's not going to cost you a nickel. We're just going to print the money. It's all free. Well, then the people don't even impose bigger government. So I, I would rather have taxes go up to pay for government than just pay for it through inflation. Because right, right. it ultimately costs even more when you pay for it through inflation and it does more damage to the economy. But if people think it's free, they'll want it. It's only when they think it costs something that they now they do the analysis and determine they don't really want it. Yes, I, I agree. Folks, let's take a break from the discussion for me to once again remind you that if you like what you hear, you like the guests that I bring on and the perspective I offer in the solo episodes, by all means, consider making a contribution. The more such contributions I get, the more episodes I can do per month just as a justification for using my scarce labor hours on this outlet that I love, but yet does not fully pay the bills. And so I can only do it part-time thus far. For details on how you can do that and all the special bonuses, depending on your level of contribution, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Let me just mention, if you've made a qualifying contribution and you're supposed to get let into the Facebook secret group, shh, it's a secret. And it's been more than two weeks since you've made the contribution and I haven't gotten back to you. That means I somehow missed the note in my inbox. And so don't be shy. Please get in touch and just let me know. Uh, make sure that I get everybody in there who's supposed to be in there. Last thing I'll mention is whether you contribute or not, another way you can certainly help is subscribe to me on YouTube. And when you come across an episode that you realize some of your friends might be interested in or, you know, a coworker, and I'm going to be trying to make more episodes that are catering to someone who's not a true believer, as it were, then sharing the episodes with people like that is another great way for me to get the podcast out in front of more people. Thanks, everybody, for your support. And let's get back to the episode. So I only have you for a little bit more here. I did want to ask you, you mentioned uh, your son, Spencer, a minute ago. And I'm, I'm just wondering, do you, did you have a philosophy in terms of like, hey, if he asks me about my views, I'll tell him or, you know what I'm saying? Like in terms of as a parent, how do you decide like, you know, what's the line between showing them how the world works versus indoctrination? Well, you know, yeah, I mean, obviously I have a, a, a perspective. And so you can say, hey, are, did, did I, in, you know, indoctrinate my son into uh, these beliefs? And I, I, again, you know, he has his own mind. Mm -hmm. I, I think I opened his eyes to a lot of stuff that maybe he wouldn't have seen, but for my opening his eyes, but you never know. But he's done a lot of research. In fact, you know, he's read a lot more Austrian economic stuff than I have, you know, mm -hmm. and he listens to far more podcasts. I mean, he's a big fan of yours. He listens to all your podcasts. He listens he's to a smart lot of kid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, he's really educated himself and he's, you know, he's, he's way further to me. I mean, he's, you know, anarcho-capitalism and I argue with him. Because he mm -hmm. thinks we should have no government at all, you know, where I'll, I'll talk about how, you know, it's theft when the government takes money from Peter and gives it to Paul. Right. But he says, well, it's theft whenever they take money from Peter, regardless of what they do with it. So he doesn't mm -hmm. like the government funding things that are for the common good, like the police right. department or the fire department mm -hmm. or the national defense. 
You know, so he's gone further than where I am on that mm. political spectrum, right? I, I don't believe in no government. I believe in limited government. And, and on, from an idealistic perspective, I can see some of his points. But I believe from a practical perspective, if that's your philosophy, you're getting nowhere. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're not going to get people to go from big government to zero government. The most you can do is shrink the government we have at, rather than try to eliminate it completely. And, and, mm-hmm. and there's other reasons that I believe that that state is not going to be able to exist for long. I think a vacuum is going to get filled and mm-hmm. not in the way that uh, a lot of anarchists anticipate. I think, I think the founding fathers had a good idea. I think, I think we would have been better served, again, had we stayed with the Articles and not written the Constitution and, 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 and let the, you know, the camel's nose uh, under the tent. Uh, sure. But had the Constitution been correctly enforced, you know, we wouldn't be in this problem. But again, they should have realized that over time, you know, the protections that were written into the Constitution would be whittled away. And so the mistake was uh, giving the government the ability to, to even do that. Right, right. Um, just pivoting now, an- another big thing I want to ask you about was, so you recently set up a place in, in Puerto Rico, and w- with all the stuff going on, I know a-, a lot of people, especially wealthier Americans, are probably, you know, accelerating their plans if they thought, you know, one day, why don't I just cash out and get up, get the heck out of Dodge? So I'm wondering, you know, now that, that in hindsight, you know, do you have any tips or, you know, just words of wisdom for people who, as they're looking around or thinking, you know, I don't know that I want to be here five years from now. Yeah, you know, well, I would move to Puerto Rico a lot sooner. I wouldn't wait five mm-hmm. years. I would just, I mean, right, I've already right. moved there. Um, and, you know, I moved there for a number of reasons. I mean, I was already, before I moved to Puerto Rico, I was going to move to Florida, right? I was going to maintain my home in Connecticut, which I, I still have. I, I like Connecticut, you know, not their politics, but I, I, I like, you know, the state and right. its proximity to New York, which although the appeal of that has been diminished greatly recently because we never even go there. But I mean, that will change. Eventually, the city will come back with to some type of, of life. Um, but, I, I, you know, I'm not a big fan of the winter. I mean, I think snow is pretty, but that's about it. And it's pretty the first time it falls, you know, then it, then, right. you, then it's an annoyance. And it's pretty cold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I already you know, there's a lot of snowbirds. So I was going to move down to Florida and kind of like go back and forth, but have Florida be my primary residence mm-hmm. to get out of the cold weather, to be in a warmer climate, but then also to get out of the Connecticut state income tax, which was on the high side, not the highest in the country. But, you know, I can read the writing on the wall. You have a state that's basically broke, massive debts. They're the biggest employer in the state is the government. You have the, 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 the it's the state employees that basically control the outcome of the election. There's massive unfunded pension liabilities that are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So you can see that taxes are just going to slowly go up. And the, the, the most likely target are the, are the higher income people, which I'm, I'm, I'm in that, you know, that, that class. And so we're going to get targeted for the biggest tax hikes because, you know, we don't have a lot of votes. Right. If you're one percent of the population, I mean, you're you're a rounding error in the election. Who gives a damn right. about you? I mean, you, they want that the politicians want the contributions, but they couldn't care less about the votes. Um, and, and so I knew that if I just stayed here, I was like a frog in a pot that was being slowly boiled. Right. I just wanted to get the hell out. So um, I was going to go to Florida. That's when I found out about Puerto Rico and I checked out Puerto Rico and I moved my business there. 
a few years before I actually moved there. That was my business out in California, Euro Pacific Asset Management. So mm -hmm. I was still working here, but I moved my California business to Puerto Rico, bought a condo down there, and kind of as a tourist, you know, spent two or three years kind of just going down there. And I really liked it, really fell in love with the community, with the island. And I was like, hey, I want to live here. It's a great place to live. Um, and, you know, I'm not paying the income tax, right? I'm paying uh, zero capital gains. I'm paying 4% on my earned income. And that's it, which, you know, for the first time in my life, I, I kind of feel somewhat free. Yeah. You know, we're like, I don't, I don't serve a master. You know, if I was a medieval serf, I would have to give the Lord 25% of what I earned. And that defined feudalism. And that was supposedly bad that you had to give up 25% of what you produced. Well, the serfs didn't realize how good they had it. I mean, they, I mean they, they, it could have been worse. They could have been an American and they right. could have been given the government half. Yeah. So now I've, you know, I finally emancipated myself to the point where I'm living better than a surf because I'm keeping 96%. You know, the government just takes four. And, you know, I wish, you know, Donald Trump has got himself into, into hot water, right? Uh, because he tried to minimize his taxes by utilizing the legally available deductions at his disposal which is something that every single taxpayer does. Right. I mean, if they don't, I mean, they're an idiot. I mean, mm -hmm. I would say that Donald Trump would not be qualified to be president if he was so dumb that he overpaid on his taxes. I mean, if he couldn't figure out how to minimize his taxes, how is he going to run the United States? Right, I, I right. want to make sure the president paid as little tax as possible because that shows he's smart. He knows he knows how to arrange his affairs. He's not a moron. I mean, none of these left wing guys that are criticizing Trump, right, for taking advantage of lost carry forwards or structuring businesses in such a way uh, that you can minimize the tax or taking advantage of depreciation, non-cash expenses, 1031 exchanges. I mean, they're doing the same thing themselves. I mean, people hire accountants to do their taxes. Why? Because they don't want to miss any of the deductions. Oh, if yeah. I do it myself, I might overpay. So let me hire a professional who knows the code can make sure I pay. In fact, that, that's what accountants tell you. Hey, we'll earn our fee. We're going to save you money. We're going to find those deductions you might not know about, right? The code is so complicated. Anybody could just write in how much they earn and pay the tax. The only reason you need an accountant is because you don't want to do that. Right, you want right. to pay as little as possible. So I wish Donald Trump had been more straightforward about that from the beginning. So look, yeah, I'm not going to release my tax returns because you know what? It's private, personal information. I don't think anybody running for office should release the returns. But you know what? I'll tell you this. I paid no taxes. I did everything I could to minimize my taxes, and so I barely paid any. Fine. Just admit it. Be proud of the fact that you did it. Because as far as I'm concerned, any money that anybody sends to the U.S. government, they're just going to waste it. Why mm -hmm. send it there? I mean, invest it privately. I mean, I don't just, you know, the money that I don't spend in taxes, it's not like I'm just, you know, spending it all on myself. It's mostly just invested in my businesses and in other investments. I mean, I, I think that I'm going to invest the money more wisely than just let the government go blow it. Uh, and, and, and I don't think anybody has a patriotic duty to try to direct more money to the government. Mm -hmm. Now, I wish the government would respond to people not, you know, minimizing their taxes by cutting government spending. I would like to force the government to spend less by giving it less to spend. But unfortunately, it just prints whatever I don't send them. Right, so, right. <laughs> so so now they end up paying, now they end up taxing everybody through inflation. And I avoid that tax based on 
on, on my investments um, and by investing in things that will do well with inflation. But, you know, if I ever run for president and a lot of people I get encouraged every day, people ask me, you know, run for president. You know, I ran for Senate. So I, I, I tried that and I was drafted into that. I had no intention to run for Senate. And I ended up running in 2010 because so many people wanted me to back then. Um, but if I ever do, I will proudly embrace my uh, low uh, income tax payments over the years. Great. <laughs> um, and, and if there's, you just, you moved to Puerto Rico and now you're not paying taxes. Yeah. Yeah. I moved there. I'm not paying taxes. I mean, people, people move out of states, people move out of high tax states to low tax states all the time. Right. What's wrong with it? You know, so I, I would not run from the fact that I don't like paying taxes. I don't want anybody to pay taxes. It's not just me. I'm consistent. I want to eliminate the income tax. I don't right. want anybody to pay the income tax. Mm-hmm. I think it should be abolished. It's unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. It's horrible economics. It hurts the country. It undermines liberty. It should not exist. And so I don't, I, you know, I don't, I don't feel badly about the fact that by living in Puerto Rico, I'm not paying that tax. It doesn't, doesn't bother me at all. So mm-hmm. I would be proud of it. The only thing is if I run for president, I can't vote for myself. <laughs> because, yeah, because you can't vote for president when right. you live in Puerto Rico, but you can right, run right. for president living, from, living in Puerto Rico. Oh, okay. Yeah, that is a nice little. I just can't little vote. Right. Neither yeah. can my wife. So, she won't be able to vote for me either. So that's two votes that we lose. <laughs> but if we lived in Connecticut, those votes wouldn't matter anyway. Because I would probably, if I lived in Connecticut and ran for president, if I actually got nominated, I could be the only candidate to lose his home state. Right, right. Because I don't think that, I don't think, although you never know. I mean, it, it, mm-hmm. it, it's hard to say. You know, maybe I could persuade enough uh, uh, liberals to, to, to vote for me. It's, it's just hard mm-hmm. because most people vote for something for nothing. It's, right. you know, you, you win an election by outpromising your opponent. And the electorate is now so dumbed down and so dependent on government that if all you're promising is freedom, right? Because that's my platform. I'm going to give you back your freedom. I'm going to restore your individual liberty. I'm not mm-hmm. going to give you anything except your freedom back. I'm going to stop taking away the things that you have. So, you know, don't look for what am I going to give you? What am I going to let you keep? Right? I want to get government out of your life. I want to get rid of all the taxation and regulation that is stifling economic growth, limiting your choices, limiting your freedom, limiting your opportunity. I want government to get out of the way so that capitalism could work right? and so that we can have a rising rather than falling living standard. Uh, mm-hmm. But the question is, Americans today, will they vote for that? I mean, they would have voted for it 100 years ago. Um, Americans were proud of that 100 years ago. They were proud of those traditions of limited government and the rugged individual. I mean, when, when uh, FDR first introduced, introduced relief during the Depression, people were embarrassed to even admit that they took it. Yeah. There was actually a stigma. Now people are proud of all the free stuff they get from government. Uh, so the, the entire character of the nation is extremely different. So it's hard to say if, you know, if, 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 if those ideals, you know, would, would have any appeal broadly at the polls, you know, yeah, I mean, just a, another yeah example is just the word socialism. Like that used to be a dirty word. And now, even though some of the stuff that they're pushing isn't outright socialism, certainly when they point to like Scandinavian countries, that's not socialism. Nonetheless, the term is not so toxic anymore, which kind of just amazes me. Well, so I even think communism is, is, is risen. Marxism. If, yeah. You know, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of Democrats were socialists in the past. They just didn't want to say it publicly because right. it would offend even a lot of the Democrats. So they, mm-hmm. they were in the closet. 
But now they're they're coming out. Now it's like if you're not a socialist, you're you're a problem. Why yeah. why are you why are you opposing socialism? Capitalism itself has a very bad name. Even if you're not pro-socialism, you're anti-capitalism. And in fact, you know, I had this debate the other guy with you know the day, uh, or not a debate. You know, it was an argument because I was on uh, a, a, a show with this guy Richard Wolf, mm-hmm. who's you know just a total Marxist. And the problem is when he's criticizing capitalism. He's not criticizing capitalism. He's criticizing what we got now and calling it capitalism. Mm-hmm. And so he's criticizing how you know the rich are benefiting from all these monetary policies of the Fed and not realizing that the Fed is not part of capitalism. The, pe- the Fed is a socialist institution that is attached itself to capitalism like a parasite, right? Under capitalism, it's private banking, not government banking. You don't have price fixing of interest rates. You have the market discovering interest rates. In capitalism, you'd have real money. Gold would be money, not paper, right? Mm -hmm. So to say that capitalism doesn't work and then point to all the things the Fed is doing and say that's capitalism, that's not capitalism. You know, and then you report, you you point to all the special interests, all the, the companies that benefit from these regulations and these laws. How is that capitalism? That's the government interfering with capitalism. Nobody has an advantage under capitalism, right? The government is neutral, right? But under what we have now, the government picks winners and losers. The government subsidizes one industry, taxes another, right? They decide what they want to do, and then they write the tax code to favor certain things and discourage other things. And then that causes problems. And then you say, oh, you see, capitalism doesn't work. How is that capitalism? Yeah, what's particularly annoying is that if if you said to these people, like, oh, why do we have the Fed? Why don't we get rid of the SEC? They, of course, would say, because that would be crazy if we just had pure laissez-faire. And so it's like, okay, so fine. So when stuff blows up now in the real world, don't say that's laissez-faire. You you can't have it both ways. Yeah, and they like to say it's impossible to have it both. But, of course, we can. I mean, yeah, we don't need the SEC. We don't need FINRA. All these uh, government agencies that are supposedly there to protect the public they don't protect the public. They protect the industries that then cap, capture the regulators. They protect the industries from competition. They provide mm-hmm. cover to the bad actors. The, the best protector of the public is a vibrant free market with capitalism, without the government coming in. That's the protection that you can rely on. You can't rely on the corruption of government. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they, 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 they interfere with capitalism, produce a negative outcome, and then use that negative outcome as proof that capitalism doesn't work, and now yeah. we need more government. <laughs> right, and so exactly. it's a self-fulfilling uh, uh, endeavor that they do because their their agenda is to be more socialist. And the more socialism they can slip into capitalism, the worse capitalism looks. And now that that makes it easier for them to to get more socialism until eventually they destroyed capitalism completely, and all you're left with is socialism. And mm-hmm. th- that's where we're headed. Yeah. Can I, on that note, if, if I can just get, ask one last question for you, I appreciate your time, Peter. Can you just give us your outlook on the future? You know, any timeline you want to put in, you know, your your views, like, are they going to see the light and turn this thing around? Is it going to take a dollar crash? You know, any anything like that, just to give people the idea who who like your worldview and to say, you nailed it last time. You know, what does Peter Schiff think right now in 2020? Yeah, you know, I think everything that I said was going to happen in my book you know, the, the one I wrote in 05, the real crash, it's all going to happen, right? Mm-hmm. And the crash that I was referring to in that book was not the crash of 08. I, I predicted the crash of 08. I didn't specifically say that it would happen in 08. I said it would happen soon. 
Um, but that crash I thought was going to be the, the precursor to uh, a much bigger crash, which was going to be the crash in the dollar. So when I wrote uh, Crash Proof and I uh, pointed out the housing bubble that reckless Fed policy had inflated and how the whole economy had actually been built on the foundation of uh, inflated home prices, uh, home equity extractions, and, and, and all this debt uh, finance consumption, that we had built this economy that was based on this housing bubble, and that when the housing bubble popped, we would have this severe recession. I said it would be the worst recession since the Great Depression. And I also said the losses to the banking system would be unprecedented because you know, the, I said the real losers in the housing bubble are not going to be the people that bought houses. It's going to be the people that loaned them the money because a lot mm -hmm. of people were buying houses with nothing down. And even if they put something down, they borrowed it out. So they were playing with the house's money and the house being the banks and the government. So I said we would have this big financial crisis. And I said Fannie and Freddie would go bankrupt. And, and all the things that I said would happen, happened. What I said was, or what I wrote too, was as a result of this, you know, the worst recession since the Great Depression, 10% unemployment, trillion dollar budget deficits, right? All this stuff happened. I said the government and the Fed will not admit their culpability in creating the crisis. They will deny responsibility, blame capitalism, and they will try to solve the problem by doing more of what created it. So I said their response will be slashing interest rates again, printing more money, and that policy, right? What they would do to try to revive the housing bubble and the stock market bubble that would cause a dollar crash. And when the dollar crashed, that was lights out for the economy because our economy is predicated on exporting dollars and importing everything else, right? We, we live beyond our means and what makes that possible is the dollar's reserve status. We don't have to manufacture stuff, we just print money. And then we, we, we export that and then we import all the things that we didn't produce. Oh, and we don't have to save because the world will just lend us their savings so we can have this vibrant economy without having to save. We can just go out and spend. Everybody can be levered up. We can max out our credit cards. We can borrow because the world is going to do all the hard work for us and accept our IOUs in, indefinitely. And this was, you know, and, and in addition to that, too, as the world recycled its trade surpluses in the U.S. financial assets, the stock market went up, right? The bond, so we actually benefited from the deficits by having our stock prices go up, and then we can borrow even more money against those inflated uh, value. So I said, this whole thing is going to collapse when the dollar crashes. That part hasn't happened because what I got wrong was my belief back in 05, 06, was that the Fed would attempt to reflate the bubbles, but would fail in that attempt because the dollar would collapse in the process. That didn't happen. The dollar didn't collapse. It started to go down, as I said, but then in 2011, it kind of turned around. And then we had this big rise in the dollar because the Fed convinced everybody that what they did worked, that I was wrong, mm -hmm. right? That right. it could do the impossible, which was shrink its balance sheet and normalize interest rates. And as the market began to anticipate a return to normal monetary policy, right? A journey which I knew would never have be completed, even if it was started, I said they would abort it long before they finished it. The market began anticipating this and we had this long rise in the dollar. And that enabled the Fed to succeed uh, at what I thought it would fail. So it didn't just try to reflate the bubble in the stock market or the real estate market. It succeeded and it reflated even bigger bubbles than the ones that popped. In fact, it inflated a bubble in everything. And if you go back and you look at 
how bad the 08 crash was. And that was the result of the Fed having interest rates at 1% for like a year and a half and then Mm -hmm. taking too long to normalize them. Took a couple of years to get back up to five. And during that period of easy money, we had a bubble so big that it created the financial crisis and the worst recession since the Great Depression, which would have been even worse had we not made the mistakes of bailing everybody out and, and, and slashing rates again. But this time we had interest rates at zero for like six years. They never got normalized. It took about three or four years to get them back up to two and a half percent. And then we immediately moved them back down to zero as soon as you know we had trouble. Uh, the Fed did QE. They never shrunk the balance sheet by any meaningful amount. Now it's over seven trillion, right? It was four and a half trillion was the peak after the 08 and we're already over seven. Um, so if you think about how much damage was done by the Fed in the Greenspan era, based on that reckless monetary policy, imagine how much damage has been done to the economy under Bernanke, Yellen, and Powell, when the policies are far more reckless now than anything that Greenspan did. And Greenspan knows this himself. I mean, he knows we're screwed. Listen to what the guy says now. I mean, he sounds like me. He's talking about uh, uh, stagflation, about all these problems. He's telling people to buy gold. I mean, he's sugarcoating it a bit because he's, he's worried about throwing stones from a glass house you know, I mean, he wrote this playbook. He knows how it ends. See, the problem right. is uh, Powell doesn't understand the book. He doesn't know how it ends. He doesn't. Greenspan is a smart guy. I mean, he was in Ayn Rand. I mean, he wrote Capitalism, mm-hmm. the Unknown Ideal. I mean, he wrote that uh, Golden Economic Freedom. That was a chapter in, in Rand's book. Uh, he was a free market guy. And you don't go from that, right? As I said earlier in the podcast, you go from being socialist to being free market. That's a natural progression. Nobody starts out as a free market capitalist and goes to socialist. You, you, no one makes that journey. You, you, you mm-hmm. make the other journey. Uh, and so Greenspan didn't go from being really smart and understanding money and finance, and now he's, he, you know, he doesn't get it or he didn't get it when he was Fed chairman. Uh, so he knows that this, you know, he basically created the equivalent of a Frankenstein's monster. And, 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 and it's going to come back and, and, and destroy its creator. So if the damage was so bad uh, in 08, imagine how much worse it's going to be. I mean, we've only seen the cusp of that now. But I think that we're going to get the dollar crash that I thought we would get much sooner. There is no way that the Fed is going to reflate these bubbles, no matter how much it tries. There is no way the Fed is going to convince anybody at this point that interest rates are going back to normal, that the balance sheet is going to shrink. They're not going to convince anybody that they're not monetizing the debt. In fact, they're not even trying. The Fed is going out of its way to tell people we're never raising rates, right? We're not even thinking about mm-hmm. thinking about thinking about raising rates. Yeah. Rates are going to be at zero until 2024. Oh, we want inflation higher than 2%. We need more inflation, not less inflation. We're not an inflation fighter anymore. We, we're, we're an inf- inflation creator. We're, we, that, that's our goal. That's our policy. You measure our success based on how much inflation we create, not how much yeah. we avoid. And I just want to stress to the listener, you're not putting words in their mouth. Like they, they really, this is the policy. Like they're trying to reassure markets. We're going to push up CPI. Yes. It's incredible. Yes. And, and, and so how is the dollar going to rally with that happening? It is impossible. And now we're actually moving to a political consensus that deficits don't matter. They can be as big as we want, which means that America can have anything it wants by printing money, right? So we don't have to pay for anything anymore. So we had big government 
when we told the public they had to pay for it. Imagine how much bigger it's going to get when we're now telling the public it's free, right? <laughs> and look at all the inflation we had when the Fed told us that they were fighting it, when the Fed told us that their goal was price stability and we had all this inflation. Now they're telling us they don't want stable prices. They want prices to go up. So if we had so much inflation when they didn't want it, imagine how much we're going to get when they, that's their goal, when they do want it. So there is no way to stop the dollar from falling. So once it starts to fall, that is going to become the crisis. The only thing that's going to put an end to this party is the dollar's crash. Because as long as they can print money and, and it has value, they're going to do it. As long as they can give the voters something for nothing and delay the pain, they're going to do it. The Republicans believe that, too. The Democrats just want more something for nothing. Nobody wants to pay for anything. I mean, the Republicans are promising tax cuts and more government. Yeah. And the, the Democrats are only promising higher taxes on the very rich. They're not saying we're going to tax the middle class, only the super rich. But they're going to have they want even more government. So it's all going to be financed by inflation. The world is not going to sit back and enable this to happen because it exacts too big a toll on the rest of the world who has to finance all this because the world has to live beneath its means to allow America to live above its means. We can only produce what we don't consume if the rest of the world uh, um, produces what it doesn't consume. Right. So the world has to produce extra and let us have it. And we can only borrow without saving if the rest of the world saves without lending. They have to loan their savings to us and they have to divert their production to us and they have to give up that themselves. And what we're telling them is this is going to get a lot worse. This, the cost of subsidizing the American economy is about to go much higher because fewer Americans are going to work, but we're going to want to keep buying. Stuff. We're not going to be productive, but we want to keep consuming. And, and therefore, you got to pay for it. It's not going to happen. The dollar is going to tank. And, it's, and, and then when that happens, it's going to take the bond market down with it. Uh, the, the pressure on long-term interest rates is going to be dramatic because nobody is going to want to own dollars. Why would you, if you're in Germany or Japan or anywhere, and you have U.S. treasuries that are yielding 1%, 2%, and the dollar is losing 10 15% of its value every year, why are you going to hold on to that? Even if you own any U.S. bonds, you own a corporate bond, right? you own any U.S. debt instrument, where the coupon is well below the annual depreciation rate of the dollar. Nobody is gonna wanna hold on to that bond. There's gonna be, a, it's gonna be a run on all dollar debt. Now, normally, well, interest rates would just go up, but the Fed can't let that happen because then everything would implode because we have so much debt, we can't afford a higher interest rate. Mm -hmm. So that mm -hmm. puts more and more pressure on the Fed to start monetizing all the debt that no one in their right mind wants to hold. So as the Fed has to print even more dollars to buy up all the dollar debt that the world is unloading, now there's even more inflation. So now the value of that debt is falling even faster, which puts even more pressure. Eventually, even Americans are not going to want to hold any U.S. dollar denominated debt. Forgetting about the foreign exchange rate, if your cost of living is going up by 5 or 10% or more a year, yet the coupon on your bond is 2 or 3% and you're paying taxes on that, you are losing money. Nobody is going to want to loan money to anybody at rates of interest that are well below the nominal rate of uh, the increase in the cost of living. So the Fed goes from being the lender of last resort to the lender of only resort. Right? The mm -hmm. Fed is now not just lending to the U.S. government. The Fed is lending to everybody because that's the only way to keep interest rates suppressed. But again, the more money they have to print to suppress rates, the more value they destroy 
in the dollars that already exist. And then eventually it's not going to matter if you can borrow money because you can't buy anything with it. It's not going to matter that the government can can send it unemployment benefits or Social Security benefits. Those benefits don't mean anything if you can't buy anything with the money. I mean, we are headed for this massive dollar crisis. Mm -hmm. Now, the Fed is going to have two choices. The government's going to have two choices. Do the right thing reluctantly. Let interest rates skyrocket. Default on their obligations. The government basically telling people we made promises we can't keep. We made promises to bondholders we can't keep. We can't. Interest rates just went up. We're, we're, we can't we can't pay. So we're defaulting. We have to restructure. You own U.S. Treasuries. You're not going to get 100 cents on the dollar. Maybe you'll get 30 cents on the dollar. I don't know. We, we're, you know, we're we have to restructure people on Social Security. Man, we made these promises. We can't keep them. We got to figure out a way. Maybe we're going to means test it. We're going to have an asset. We got to find we can't pay everybody. We don't we're broke. Right. So either the government finally does that. And of course, it's much worse now because we delayed the inevitable for so long. The problem got much bigger than what would have been the case had we tackled it sooner. But nobody had the political motivation to do it because as long as there's no crisis, just kick the can down the road because the crisis is somebody else's problem. So why worry about that now? So either the Fed does the right thing, the government does the right thing, slashes spending, lets interest rates go up, lets stock prices crash, real estate prices, all that, um, and forces a real recovery, which is you know going to involve a lot of short-term pain. Or- they just keep printing money until the dollar is worthless and we have hyperinflation and we're Weimar Republic or Zimbabwe or Argentina. Or and that's even worse. Right. But those are the only two outcomes. I mean, neither of them is good. Yeah. There's no soft landing. Those are our choices. <laughs> yeah. You know, so it, and what's what's funny is, too, is that or not funny. It's it's chilling is that with this coronavirus stuff, I mean, Powell, the 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 type of assets they're allowing themselves to buy has gone, you know, no one even cares. Like, it's like, oh yes, please buy more, you know, buy corporate bonds. You know, it's, it wouldn't surprise me if they start buying stocks. Yeah, well, because if the Fed wasn't buying those bonds, their interest rates on those bonds would be rising. Yeah. And the companies would, would not be able to pay a lot of them. And in fact, you know, what's actually happening is a lot of companies are now issuing debt and then they're, you know, like, a lot, and now they're, they're sending out dividends. They're basically taking that money and giving it to owners. In fact, a lot of these private equity funds are not even public. They're able to tap the credit markets to make big distributions to themselves. You know, the companies are never going to be able to repay these mo- this money. In fact, there are a, a lot of companies would have gone bankrupt, but for the Fed. Now, a lot of people think this is good, right? The Fed is keeping all these pe- companies in business, right? Otherwise, they would go bankrupt. And if they went bankrupt, they would be laying off workers. So the Fed is keeping businesses that would otherwise fail operating and they're keeping people who would otherwise have these jobs they're keeping them off the unemployment lines but what we know is that this is damaging the economy if these businesses should fail they need to fail they're failing because they're not profitable and by allowing them to continue to exist all they're going to do is fail in a more spectacular fashion in the future because we're keeping them in business by growing their debt well if they couldn't be profitable with you know, a smaller amount of debt, they're going to be even more unprofitable in the future when they have even more debt. So we're just delaying the day of reckoning, making it worse. But in the meantime, we are misdirecting capital. That capital needs to be freed up. It's not good if those workers are employed at money losing companies. That means their labor is not creating value to society. It's destroying value. That labor needs to be freed up 
so that it can be used productively someplace else. They need to be generating profits, not generating losses. That's what they don't understand. And it's not just a profit because it enriches the business owner. It's the profit that maximizes the use of our scarce resources. It's a signal that society values the output more than the input. If a company is losing money, what that reveals is that we are destroying value. We are taking scarce resources and combining them in a way that we have less value than when before we combined them. You know, we don't have an unlimited amount. So those resources would be better utilized by other businesses where they're actually creating rather than destroying value. So all the Fed does is enable the value destruction to continue. But yes, in the short run, you know, that might be preferable because we don't have to deal with reality. But, you know, failure to deal with reality is not a long-term successful plan. They just close your eyes, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like like an ostrich sticking its head in the sand thinking that, okay, I'm safe. You know, maybe that's the way not to deal with. There's a lion coming at you. But I'd rather try <laughs> to run away or do something than just sit there waiting to get eaten because I can't see the lion because my head is stuck in the ground. Right, right. Well, uh, let me wrap it up there um, just to respect your time, Peter. Uh, So, folks, this is BobMurphyShow.com slash 157 uh, for links to all the things we've been talking about. Um, My guest has been Peter Schiff running several things, Euro-Pacific Capital, Schiff Gold, and, of course, his podcast, Peter Schiff Show. Peter, it's a pleasure to hear from you. As I, I reviewed one of your books and I said something to the effect of like Peter Schiff is the guy like in the financial sector whose views most closely approximate my own. Uh, you do a great job communicating these things to the public. And so I uh, thanks for your time and I wish you success. Thanks a lot for having me on. The respect is mutual. I mean, again, there's a there's a handful of us out there uh, that are spreading the word. And I'm glad we're there. You know, I'm glad that you're able to have an influence on my son and another people's uh, kids. You know, the medium that we have, I mean, it's so fortunate And this, again, this is a creation of what's left of capitalism in our system. Mm. Capitalism is what created all this, right? These podcasts are here because of uh, freedom in the market. And what it's enabling us to do is bypass a lot of these gatekeepers and get information out there directly to the public. So anybody who wants this information, it's there, you know? And and yeah, one one thing I, it's thank you for those kind remarks. And it's, you're right. The way I picture it or what I said to some people, like they say, what's your mission? What are you trying to do? And I say, well, when the crash comes, I don't want people blaming it on capitalism. I want to at least make sure that they know what caused this and they don't, can't blame the free market. Exactly. And, you know, we know they're going to. That's their script. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what mm-hmm. they do. And in fact, you know, after the financial crisis happened, they held hearings in Congress right, to try to determine why it happened. And I tried my best to be a witness. This is before I testified in Congress at all. Mm-hmm. I wanted to testify at that conference, right? And I was trying to make the point, look, I predicted the financial crisis. I wrote a book predicting it. I bet against the housing market. I did all these things that show that I wasn't surprised by what happened. I, I expected it. I anticipated it. I was warning about it. So you guys are convening a commission to try to understand why we had this crisis. Don't you think it made sense to have somebody who actually predicted it in advance? Why are you only talking to people who were completely blindsided by the crisis, who actually said there wasn't a problem, there was nothing mm-hmm. to worry about? Why are those your witnesses? Because what the hell do they know? You know, I thought it was interesting that they tried to credit Janet Yellen. You know, when when um, <laughs> um, uh, President Obama nominated Yellen, mm-hmm. he said she was the one that was sounding the alarm. 
She was warning about the problems in the housing market. Too bad we didn't listen to her. And that was a complete lie. I did a pod, two podcasts on it, and I actually got the very speeches that mm-hmm. Obama said, that's where she warned us. And she did the opposite of that. She actually said, there are people who are worried that there's a housing bubble. They're wrong. There's right, the housing right. bubble, the housing market is fine. Then she said, you know, if they're right, even if housing prices go down, it's not even going to matter. I don't expect them to go mm-hmm. down. I think they're going to keep going up. But if I'm wrong and they go down, it's not even a problem. I mean, she was so yeah. dismissive of anything wrong. I mean, she's not even close to warning about anything. Right. Yet somehow I, they yeah, manufactured just, this myth that she was like a female Peter Schiff, you know, talking yeah. about and the Fed was not heeding her advice. But all the people that testified at that those hearings blamed capitalism, blamed mm-hmm. Wall Street, which is exactly what they wanted. The whole hearing was a farce. They knew what the outcome was going to be before they set it up. They put a bunch of ringers in there to say we had Mm -hmm. a financial crisis because we didn't have enough government. We had too much capitalism. We didn't have enough regulation because the conclusion of the hearings was going to be the Fed needs to have more power. The government needs to have more power to rein in capitalism to make sure this doesn't happen again. So we basically granted more power to the very institutions that created the problem. And the result is exactly what you'd expect. They've now created a much bigger problem. And so the yeah. consequences of this are going to be far greater than what the consequences were before. And so, yeah, we need to be out there. We need to be talking as loud as we can. So the blame goes where it belongs to government and the Fed to try to have more credibility after it hits the fan in having some say in what we do next. So we don't mm-hmm. repeat mm-hmm. the mistake again. Right. By going all in on socialism and completely right. abandoning what's left of capitalism. We need to get rid of socialism and go back to to capitalism. And, and so there is going to be a segment of the uh, the public that gets that thanks to us. And that's another reason that I am so encouraging people to invest with me. Sure. Yes. Mm-hmm. I make money when people invest with me. I get fees. Yeah, that's great. You know, and, and, and I'm a businessman and you know, businessmen want to generate profit. But it's far more than that. I don't want people just to understand that government's the problem and capitalism the solution. I want them to have the resources to help make that happen. I want my followers to make money, not go broke, right? I want them to benefit financially from the events that happen so they'll be in better position financially to have a more meaningful say in where we go later, right? I, I, I make the analogy, you know, if, if, if you're on the Titanic, get off and get into a lifeboat. Because then when the boat sinks, if you're in a lifeboat, maybe you can help other people out of the water. But if you're in the water drowning yourself, what good are you, right? right. So you got to get off that Titanic. Right. Even you if you to- saw it coming, if you're drowning, it doesn't matter that you saw it coming. Yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> and, you know, you'll get, I'm trying to give people a financial lifeboat by investing in foreign companies, uh, countries, you know, companies in Switzerland, Singapore, Hong Kong, New Zealand, you know, interesting enough, Sweden, Norway, which people want to say are so socialist, but they're actually... Uh, much sounder economies now than ours, precisely because they've abandoned a lot of the socialism that got them into so much trouble uh, years ago. Uh, But I'm trying to be in sound companies that will pay dividends in in, in foreign currencies, gold, gold mining companies, uh, so that, you know, people who are following me will will have the resources at their disposal to do something. Instead of just struggling just to survive, uh, they'll be able to be part of a movement to restore 
uh, real capitalism and real individual liberty to America, if that's even possible. I mean, maybe it's not possible. Maybe it's a hopeless cause. But again, you know, I'd rather, you know, come through this thing, you know, wealthy than broke. Um, now, of course, the government could end up confiscating whatever money you make. I mean, I, you know, you can't really do anything about that. Maybe the government starts seizing everything, right, and then nationalizing uh, stuff. And so that's a risk. I mean, you know, moving to Puerto Rico in a way mitigates that risk. But of course, you know, it doesn't eliminate it completely. You know, there are mm-hmm. some people that just renounce their citizenship and get, pay the exit tax if they have to pay it, pay the 5000 bucks to, you know, there's the form to renounce your citizenship used to be free. And then they raised the price to like $600 and then they raised it to 5000 I think they're going to raise it to 50000 a million. Yeah. I mean, right, they're going to make right. it very expensive to renounce your citizenship because it's going to be very valuable potentially to renounce that citizenship one day. So the more valuable it is to get to get rid of your U.S. citizenship the more they can charge you for, for, for getting out of Dodge. Right. Mm-hmm. But some people may be trapped with their U.S. citizenship forever because they, they can't afford to give it up. But that shows you, you know, when they have to tax you to get rid of your citizenship, I mean, at one point, nobody would want to get rid of their U.S. citizenship. And I still want to hold on to mine, but that may not be the case forever. I mean, it, you know, it mm-hmm. all depends on how bad things get. But I want to do whatever I can to prevent things from getting that bad, both for the country and for the people who live in it, which is why I'm trying to get them to, to follow my investment strategy. Well, thanks for all those uh, words, Peter. Yeah, very sound advice. And again, folks, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 157 for links to uh, everything Peter's been talking about. Peter, thanks again for your time. Again, my pleasure and keep up the good work. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.